Coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for another episode of Tech Talk with your host, Joey Klein. Happy Thursday, everyone. A uh, little bit of a change. Normally we do Friday mornings, um, but we're, we're testing uh, how well you can roll with the punches here from Thursday afternoon. Um, as always on Tech Talk, we are talking with the best CEOs and uh, uh, high-level executives of the most interesting technology companies in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, first, we're going to talk to Mike Dickerson, CEO of Click Dimensions. Hey, Joey. Happy to be here on a cold Thursday. It is a cold Thursday, um, but I am happy just to not be sweating. So I will wear whatever sort of jackets we need to be outside. Um, and then we're going to talk to Joe Macchiarella, EVP of operations for Trextel. Hey, how's it going, Joey? Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, guys. All right. We're going to get right into it with Mike. Click Dimensions. You are a MarTech company, which is uh, one of those fancy technology terms that we throw around um, readily these days. Can you give a little bit of a deeper dive into what MarTech is for the uninitiated and what Click Dimensions does? Sure. Well, the MarTech space is a pretty big space, but what we do is pretty simple. We help automate uh, all the sort of digital interactions that uh, companies have with their prospects and customers. And we're the leading uh, marketing automation company in the Microsoft Dynamics ecosystems. We've got about 3,700 customers in 76 countries around the world and have been in Atlanta for 10 years. 10 years. And, you know, some, sometimes with this show, we have organizations that have been around a long time. Sometimes we have newly formed ones where you've got a CEO founder. You're in a position where you have entered the CEO role from a number of other organizations. Yeah, and uh, I've had the experience of having started a company a couple times myself and uh, also having stepped into one that was started by some other folks. And Click Dimensions is a great story. Started by a guy in his basement in Atlanta and uh, a, a partner typing on his keyboard in his parents' apartment in Tel Aviv, Israel. And uh, they built this business with no venture funding, no outside funding at all, and uh, built a really fantastic business. In May of 2016, they sold to the private equity firm Excel KKR, and uh, Excel brought me in in January 2017, and uh, I've been running it since then. And so we're, we're definitely going to get into your experience, not just in all different types of organizations, but also what the fundraising scene looks like here in Atlanta, um, because I think you've got a unique perspective from someone who has kind of seen it through a number of different iterations. But I, I want to drill down on exactly um, kind of who Click Dimension serves. So, you know, you are... Serving 3,700 customers around the world, um, are these anywhere from SMBs all the way up to enterprise? You know, what, what type of organizations are going to benefit from Click Dimensions? Yeah. Our, our sort of ideal customer is a B2B company somewhere, you know, less than 1,500 employees. Having said that, uh, we're the leader in marketing technology for Microsoft Dynamics. And so we have companies that, uh, are, are, Dynamics customers that are, are big. 10% of our customers have over 5,000 employees. Companies like, uh, Aflac, a good, uh, Georgia company, for example, right. is a, is a customer. But our sweet spot really is, uh, sort of mid-market and below, uh, B2B companies. And is that because there's something specific in your technology that serves them better or just because it's a hole in the marketplace that you saw or both? Uh, great question. Um, 
building on Dynamics allows us to do a couple of things uh, from a, an omni-channel perspective. And when I say omni-channel, I mean when you think about a customer or prospect experience, they're going to a website, they're getting an email, they're getting a text, but they're also talking to a salesperson or support person or somebody else in the company. And orchestrating a coherent sort of conversation across all those different touch points is complicated. And the most complicated part is when you got to orchestrate the human channels, the sales and the support side. Microsoft Dynamics is particularly uh, good at uh, the sales and support side. So uh, we built on Microsoft Dynamics. So we really focus uh, on B2B. We have plenty of B2C customers, but where we really shine is companies that have sales forces that uh, that are out there selling. For, for the layperson who does not know what Microsoft Dynamics is and why it's important that your system integrates with um, with, with that system, can you give uh, a headline as to what they should know about it? Yeah, so uh, the, the, the foundation of uh, a B2B business is its customer relationship management system that keeps track of all of the uh, uh, potential opportunities and cut prospects they might sell to and also as well as their customers. And people might know of Salesforce.com, Oracle has a, a CRM, there are plenty of other companies that have a CRM. Microsoft Dynamics is a CRM uh, for the Microsoft world. And uh, so that's where we started off with. Now, there are plenty of companies uh, that uh, provide marketing automation that might integrate with a CRM. Take, for example, another great Atlanta company, MailChimp. They will have integrations um, to Dynamics or to Salesforce, but they're passing data back and forth uh, you know, across the internet, across those systems. Click Dimensions was built natively on Microsoft Dynamics, and that means that we're not integrating data. We're actually using the same common data set. And so there are some uh, advantages in terms of faster implementation. There are advantages in terms of better execution. There are advantages in terms of um, the users all being able to use one system instead of several applications. And that's uh, that's one of the things that makes Click Dimensions different than the seven thousand other marketing technology firms that are out there. Okay, makes makes sense. And I, and I would imagine that just because of the sheer volume of users who are working on Microsoft Dynamics, the fact that your system is built upon it um, and the technology integrates nicely with it, you've got you know a very uh, kind of open partnership there that. Uh, you know, the, 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 the platform is easy for someone to get used to. Yeah, it is. And, and that's both from a customer perspective, but also a partner perspective. And one of the unique things about Click Dimensions and that helped uh, these guys grow this business was they built a partner ecosystem with, uh, almost 800 registered partners again around the, around the globe. And they did this all from Atlanta and that helped them scale to, uh, to a pretty impressive global company. Again, without uh, going outside to raise, uh, you know, venture capital money. And those partners, uh, are experts in Microsoft Dynamics. So the fact that, uh, the Click Dimensions product is built natively on Dynamics made it really easy for them to, uh, promote the product and, and endorse it. Well, let, let, let's talk about that, uh, your comment about not having to go outside and raise venture money. So anyone who, opens up the Atlanta Business Chronicle, basically sees two types of stories, right? One is about how much money a company raised, and the other is about how much space they took in a building, um, with maybe a couple of, you know, other, you know, top 40 this, top 50 this. Okay. Um, and 
I think that in in this universe and in a universe where you know for 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 better or worse it's certainly an entertaining show you know people see um you know pitches on Shark Tank every Friday night um there maybe seems to be a bit of a some the, the layperson might think there's an over reliance on companies going to raise money to grow but we just talked about Click Dimensions which is doing great and didn't have to go do that and so as someone who has been a long time participate in Atlanta's technology community. Do you think that there's an over-reliance on going to raise money as opposed to trying to do it yourself? I think that uh, there's a tendency towards that. I would say that, um, uh, and, and as you know, Joey, I, I um, have played a couple of different roles in the, in the technology ecosystem, including uh, uh, being one of the early directors of Atlanta Technology mm-hmm. Angels and starting the seed fund there with a couple other guys. And uh, uh, being managing director of eHatchery, for those of you who were, were around during the dot-com days, um, so that was an incubator and, and venture fund, um, and then starting Vocalocity, I've, I've played a couple of different roles on the, on, on the, the spectrum. And what I've seen is that, uh, you know, we're, we've, uh, what comes around goes around. If you look at how Microsoft was started, if you look at how companies like HP and digital equipment were started, um, they were started by founders who had day jobs and they, those day jobs funded their startup. Mm-hmm. And they would, uh, when they uh, left their day jobs, they often took consulting gigs and they funded themselves for an awful long way before they had to go out and get venture capital. And once upon a time, there weren't that many venture capital companies. If I look back to the dot com era and, um, you know, until, um, sort of the advent of cloud computing and open source, uh, venture capital was the only way to go. And, you know, I think of uh, early days when it used to take at least $3 million just to set up a simple e-commerce site. Now you can set it up for free and, uh, you know, do a lot more than we could do with 3 million bucks. So I think that, um, uh, while there is a, a, a strong story around, um, around, uh, you know, the numbers and it's, it's impressive to say this company raised so much in their series A, uh, we're back to a point where entrepreneurs can start a company and get to product market fit without raising, uh, outside money. Certainly the technology piece is much less expensive to do than it ever was before. Now, when you get to scale at sales and marketing, that's when, when capital, um, capital comes in. And I, you know, I look at a couple of, um, other companies, when I think about uh, some of David Cummings' companies, Pardot and Hanlon Hill and all of that, uh, you know, he was able to do that without uh, going outside, at least uh, initially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, it's it certainly for, for some organizations, depending on what type of product you're building um, and what sort of team you're building, it, it'll certainly get you there faster. You know, sort of add some gasoline to the fire. But it seems like we're, we're so we've somewhat entered an era where let's say that you have a, you know, a 22 year old recently minted college grad who goes to work for you know, a, a startup in Atlanta Technology Village. It, it, the, the world that that person has grown up in certainly glorifies the raising of money. Um, that's really what, what is heard about. It's somewhat more rare. Um, and frankly, that's why I think why I do this show to, to get out stories that are a little bit more rare, more rare to hear about someone who, you know, eschewed that route and kind of did it on their own. Yeah. Um, that's true. I guess my comment would be that it's easier to uh, go farther without venture capital 
than uh, in the technology space today, thanks to cloud computing, open mm-hmm. source, and so on. It's easier to do that today than it was, say, five years ago. So um, uh, that's good news for entrepreneurs. Um, I would also say that when I look back to uh, the dot-com era and, and raising money for companies in Atlanta, there was a, a – you know, and I'm sure people still talk about this today. Is there enough venture capital in Atlanta? Um Regardless of the answer to that question, it is easier to raise money as a company in Atlanta or anywhere else. Uh, if you have a good idea, if you have product market fit, if you have the right trajectory, uh, there's a lot of money out there seeking opportunities. It's much easier to do that today than it was 20 years ago. Well, that's without a doubt. And look, I've had people on this show because look, one of the topics that we talk about is Atlanta. Um, the, the, the commonality that every company that comes on this show has is there's an Atlanta story there. Um, and I've had people come on who have said good things about Atlanta, but then somewhat, you know, um, a, a, a friendly prodding, you know, saying that we don't have enough VC resources. And I think that your opinion is a little bit to the contrary. And frankly, I would, you know, say that mine is probably as well that, um, I think that maybe Atlanta doesn't do as good of a job of boasting about some of its accomplishments. Maybe it's this kind of, um, I don't know, uh, southern, you know, uh, some, some sort of southern hospitality that it makes us not want to yell from the rooftops about our accomplishments. But I, I think we've come a very long way, certainly even in the past 10 years and certainly 20. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would agree with that. And, and, and we could cite, you know, 50 companies that have done really well. The one thing that, um, so I, I don't think that, uh, early stage capital is the problem that it once was. What I will say is that, uh, from an optical perspective, one of the things that, that does remain true is that unlike in the Valley where, you know, a company starts small, let's say like a Google and then they become a Google and Facebook starts and then become Facebook and they stay Facebook. Companies in Atlanta, once they get to a certain size, seem to get picked off. That is very and true. And so that's uh, that. I think that may color some of the uh, the sort of perception. Now, look, you're you're not wrong. We we have very few of those. The the iconic brands that we have are ones that have been around for decades and decades. Um, the ones that you know grow super fast, and maybe the past ten to fifteen years, you know, the goal tends to be acquisition and integration as opposed to standing on their own. Um, I'm very curious to see what happens with that in, in, in the coming decade because I think that we've got – I think you and I could probably name probably five to ten that have the potential to be that brand name. And uh, I'm, I'm curious to see what happens with that if they get picked off or not. But I, I want to transition to culture because you came into an organization um, after it was bought you know, by uh, private equity – um, and you came into an organization that was somewhat, maybe fully formed is not the, the, the right term, but there was an identity there. And I'm curious about how you think about putting your own particular spin and expertise on an organization like that that has an identity, needs to grow, needs to change, but that, that has something that was working already. I mean, how do you, how do you go about inserting yourself there and adding value, um, and not Adding value, upending the things that maybe need to be upended, but not rocking the boat too much. Yeah, there's a, there's a, a, a lot of different things in that. And I can say that, uh, been at Click Dimensions a little over two and a half years. And, uh, uh, I learned an awful lot from, from the experience. Let's start off with the fact that, uh, you're right. There was a fantastic culture already in place. The guys that started this company and built this company, um, had created a, um, a very special sort of culture around, uh, 
humility and uh, helpfulness and partnering. Um, that was great. Uh, you know, so the, the, the first thing was to try and understand what that culture was and see how that, uh, you know, supported the business model. Uh, cause often with successful companies, there usually is a synergy there. And then what was going to be required to make the company successful in its next sort of holding period, its next phase of evolution and what might need to be, uh, changed. And I think, um, you know, there were some things. Uh, the company is very much a global company and it had global customers, um, but it had grown from a very uh, frugal, capital efficient um, sort of roots and, and making the transition to truly be a global company uh, did require some uh, some work and, and learning what it really means to be a private equity owned firm as opposed to a founder owned firm. Those are you know, two big things that we had mm-hmm. to navigate. Um, and, and you touched on the fact that you are a global company and I'm curious to understand more about how you foster a culture across time zones and, and, and across different cultures. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure, I'm sure we're still learning about that every day, but there are a couple of things that I think, um, uh, are useful and obtain, um, and, Let's see. We we have offices in ten different com- uh, countries, so we have employees in ten different countries, and those cultures range for range from uh, northwest part of Spain to Tel Aviv, Israel, to uh, you know Fargo, North Dakota, and, and and Greenville, South Carolina, and Christchurch, New Zealand. So the the time zones are different, but the cultures are very different, and what's uh, what's expected in terms of. Um, uh, respect for hierarchy or uh, what's appropriate to say, there's a a big difference. The way that we've tried to approach it is uh, radical transparency, to try and be as transparent as we can, to try and be as honest as as, uh, and open as we possibly can, which is um, both refreshing for for folks in in some cultures and a little bit scary sometimes. Um, But that at least seemed to be a common denominator that allowed us to um, uh, to communicate across uh, cultures and 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 uh, um, yeah uh, against cultures and and sort of norms. So I think that's uh, that's been helpful. I think uh, you know my last stint was uh, PGI, which is a conferencing and collaboration company, and so having a background of uh, web and video conferencing was helpful. Um, I can't say enough about the impact of being able to um, have a Skype conference or a Zoom conference um, where you can actually see the people that you work with, Mm -hmm. especially for uh, leaders who have team members who are in other parts of the world. Just just being able to see them uh, in your weekly check-ins makes a big difference. It it definitely does. And actually, this is – I'm surprised it's taken this long. This is actually the first time in the show that that the concept of radical transparency has come up, which, of course, anyone who's read Ray Dalio knows, um, founder of Bridgewater, is really the the cornerstone of his management philosophy and has taken um, that company to great heights. And it's something – it's one of those things that just seems – self-evident when when you when you learn more about it like why wouldn't we tell the truth and nothing but the truth to our colleagues but so often in the workplace um we chicken out might be uh, a little bit too loose of a term but you know when when put face to face with potential uh conflict and confrontation 
we, we shy away. And unfortunately, what that normally does is it lends to some passive aggressive behavior as opposed to addressing a situation head on and really dealing with it. And obviously, there's other pieces to radical transparency, sure. but that's certainly one of them. Yeah, well, so I, I have some thoughts about that. I mean, uh, uh, the Bridgewater rules and the, you know, recording every meeting is sort mm-hmm. of an interesting thing. We take a slightly different view on that. I tend more to the Kim Scott, uh, radical candor, um, mm-hmm. which is, uh, you know, uh, care deeply and challenge directly. And I think that, um, you know, Ray Dalio and in the hedge fund world, you've got a different set of motivations right. and a different kind of, kind of folk that joins that sort of place. So the Kim Scott version um, sort of says, you know, from every person that leads a team um, and is responsible for other folks, the first thing that you need to do is care deeply. And I, I don't mean tree hugging kumbaya. It means understanding what's important to the people on your team, where they're trying to go with their life, where work fits in, what their professional aspirations are, their personal aspirations, so that you have context with, um, uh, with, with uh, where they're trying to go. Um, but that also you develop trust. And this is the super important part. When I talk about, um, uh, you know, uh, transparency, um, that is different from Ray Dalio's trust is what really matters. And getting that across cultures is hard, is harder. The trust allows you to then have the direct conversation and say, you know what, you're a super smart person, but when you, um, uh, when you chew on your fingernails in the middle of a meeting, it makes people not respect you and be able to have that, uh, have that level of, of conversation or to say, uh, you know, I know you were, um, you were, uh, really trying to, uh, impress upon the, uh, the point that, uh, we needed to do X, Y, and Z, but you really made that person feel, um, uh, that you were just so much smarter than they were that they're going to lose all of their self-confidence and decision-making muscles to be able to have those sort of conversations and not do it in a, in a, uh, you know, contentious way that leaves people feeling, uh, you know, uh, that sort of electrical tension to be able to have those direct conversations. That's what's important. So the Kim Scott approach is, you know, be able to care deeply enough so that you could get the trust so that you could have real constructive conversations. And I, I think that's, um, if I were to say what has worked for us at least so far, and again, we don't have the, you know, the, the book totally written, but that, uh, that's been the approach that's worked for us. Well, that, uh, un- un- unlocking the key to having those conversations and having them productively is really the, the art of getting along with people in the workplace. Um, it's somewhat fascinating when you think about it. The past hundred years have really been this experiment and new types of relationships that we as a species have not really had before. Um, we spend as much time, if not more, with our work, friends, family, whatever you want to call them, than our own family. Um, and we're close with them, but yet there's sometimes a barrier there that you might not treat them or say things to them the same way that you would with friends who you even spend lesser time with but might be more comfortable with. And you have a common goal that needs to be accomplished. How do you bridge all of those nuances and complications to get something done and deal with the neuroses and eccentricities that we as humans all have? Yeah, so I think uh, uh, a model that's that's really important um, is the, the role of the team lead. And, and we try and use that word cause it's more modern, modern than manager. But, um, uh, a couple of things that I think, you know, sort of models to think about, uh, whether it's a quarterback or a point 
point guard in basketball who distributes the the ball around and makes sure that uh, you know people are playing well together. That's important. But there's a, a great story in um, uh, Clayton Christensen, the innovator's dilemma guy, uh, wrote a book called How Do You Measure a Life? And he tells a story of when he was CEO of a chemical company, a lady who worked in the quality control division. She ran a part of it. And, and every uh, time a new product launch uh, was coming out, there was about a three-week process that had to happen, and she was in charge of that process. And you know, people from one division, the head of one division, would want his product to go out first, and his timing was late, and he's saying, like, I need you to do this three-week process in two weeks. Anyway, she was stressed out. She would come in early every morning and get yelled at and work late every night and get yelled at and then have a two-hour ride home in the Boston traffic. And uh, Clayton Christensen said, gosh, can you imagine what she was like to her husband and three kids when she got home at 8 o'clock at night after a day like that in the traffic? And then he said, now imagine somebody who feels like they are empowered to take their best ideas and put them into use and make an impact on what they're doing and have some direction on the control of their work and to contribute uh, intellectually. Imagine that. And the the message that I took away from that and that we talked to our, our team leads about is, yeah, you're here to get a job done for the business and we're a private equity owned firm. We have uh, targets that we've got to meet. But you have a huge impact, not just on the day to day life of your employee and the, uh, your team member in the office and on their professional trajectory, but you have a huge impact on their life outside of work. And so we talk a lot about the honor and obligation of being a team lead. You have an awful lot to do with how that team member feels outside of work. And once you start talking about that, people go, yeah, that's right. I mean, we've all had uh, bosses who were moody or difficult or not the most uh, inspiring. And you think about that and go, gosh, how did they make me feel when I wasn't in work? And, um, you know, I don't want to be that that guy or girl. I want to be the person who, uh, you know, who helps make people's days a little better, not just at the office, but outside as well. I think that's such an important realization, and it's something that I have colloquially termed the circle of screaming. <laughs> and, and if you can picture someone gets screamed at at work, okay, and, and, and screaming is obviously just a catch-all term for, you know, put down whatever, whatever the action is, okay? That person's in a bad mood, goes home, takes it out on their children and their spouse. The children and spouse are in a bad mood, takes it out on their friends and coworkers, and the circle goes round and round and round. And it leads to a world of angry people who are not fun to be around. Absolutely. And, you know, I don't know if you have kids, Joey, but um, I am just having a tape playing back in my head. My 11-year-old son who was hungry because he hadn't eaten dinner and he had a long day and his mom had, you know, some difficult negotiations at work and they start talking and they're on the wrong page. And the next thing you know, they're they're at each other. And that uh, that circle can can, you know, uh, uh, that can be a vicious circle that can build up over over years. Yeah. It really can. I, I have a two-year-old daughter and I have a son on the way. And it has been the – and I'm certainly not an expert at it and I'm still getting used to it. But to leave leave everything, assuming you had a negative day, right, behind and be present there I think is one of the hardest things. And if you can master that mental acuity – you can do a lot of great things. It, the, the most important one, of course, being there and present for your family. Yeah, for sure. Um, when you figure that one out, let me. <laughs> yeah, it, it does seem to be the eternal struggle. I think it's uh, one of those, you know, uh, one step forward, two step back uh, type of ventures. 
Um, you know, you, you guys have, have clearly you're doing things well. You've been on the Inc. 5000 for a number of years in a row now. Um, what, 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 what is this? Great product, great culture, you know, everything combined. How are you, how are you doing it? Yeah, I think, um, there are a couple of things that, uh, that the company has done well. And, and like I say, I stepped into something that was already doing, uh, doing really well. Um, they figured out a partnering model that was unique. Uh, our business gets new customers largely because of a Dynamics, uh, Microsoft Dynamics partner channel. Most partner channels are reseller models, but this is really more of a symbiotic model, meaning a partner, the traditional model is here's my product. Let me teach you how to sell it. You go sell it. You support it. You make money off of that. What these guys figured out how to do was to make a product that, um, help their partners win more deals and get more of the business that they really wanted. So think of it like almost like a fuel additive, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to the, you know, the, the real, the, where the real meat of the transaction is. Um, and they figured out how to, how to do that. Well, they figured out how to get trust from their partners at scale. Um, and, uh, that's, that's really helped, uh, get to a certain level of scale of business size. Then there were a couple of other things that, uh, um, we figured out how to take advantage of being built natively on Microsoft dynamics, meant that the essentially the CRM and the marketing automation products all use the same data model. So translating between two different products wasn't such a big deal. And as we add on every piece of marketing technology, they all use that same data model. So we're able to do a couple of things. We're able to, you know, make the uh, technology work faster. There's, you know, instant on instead of implementation, our support services, we know how to go from the application all the way down to the data structure better. It allows us to do enabling services that, you know, other companies have to rely on, on marketing agencies or things like that. We get, uh, economies because all of our customers use the same, uh, data model. So we can deliver a certain set of enabling services that help people get value out of their technology. We can do it at global scale from places like Greenville, South Carolina and Cork, Ireland. Um, and then the, you know, the final thing is that the focus in the Microsoft ecosystem, um, served a, a, a purpose, you know, focus anywhere really helps. And in the marketing landscape, people are trying to figure out where's the right fit. Where can we get repeatable sales scale? Well, the constraint of having to, uh, work with customers and look for customers who had already chosen Microsoft Dynamics, um, was a was a foc- was a constraining focus mm-hmm. that ultimately um, forced a certain amount of sales efficiency. So I think those are some of the things that helped us get where we are, and we're now just sort of reinterpreting them and re relearning the gifts um, as we look at uh, you know how we grow in the uh, the next phase of the company's evolution. Well, and and one recent development in your company's evolution is that you made an acquisition recently. Yeah, we did, and it's um, uh, part part of our thesis was that we're at a certain scale of, of number of customers and we have a very efficient customer acquisition engine through these partners. So we could go out and buy uh, pieces of a full marketing cloud uh, more effectively and faster and cheaper than we could build them ourselves in many cases. And with 7,040, I think, in the Mar- MarTech 5,000, um, there are a lot of companies out of there, out there who have great technology, but have run out of money and they're, you know, they don't, they're, they're really feature groups, not full-fledged companies. We've been able to go out and sort of cherry pick. So we bought 
a company called Sweetspot out of Gijón, Spain, which is the uh, northwest part of Spain. And uh, they were one of uh, Gartner's four touted firms in the uh, marketing uh, performance dashboard, marketing intelligence sort of space. Uh, the others were Datarama that got bought by Salesforce for $850 million. Uh, origami logic that got by bought by intuit for you know i think a billion or something like that another one that got uh back in that got bought by um Acklate. and then we picked up the fourth one sweet spot we didn't quite pay 850 million um but we got some really great technology because there was a uh, a go to market story uh, a customer acquisition story and uh so that that was the the first of those and we we plan to do more in the future um, but it brought in some great people. It also extended our, our culture. We now, uh, you know, we have people working in Tel Aviv, Israel with people in, uh, in Gion, Spain, coordinated from, uh, Atlanta with a little dash of, uh, of, of, uh, Minsk, Belarus, and maybe some Cork, Ireland all in the mix. That's amazing. Well, look, uh, with, with, with all of those exciting things happening at Click Dimensions, if someone listening to this wants to learn more, how do they get in touch with you? Yeah. So, um, feel free to drop me an email at mike.com. Dickerson at clickdimensions.com or go to clickdimensions.com. Uh, you know, we're, we're here in Atlanta and, uh, uh, you know, we, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Great. All right, Mike, thanks for coming on and sharing your story. Thanks, Joey. A lot of fun to be here. Okay. Joe Macchiarella, how are we today? Doing well. How are you doing, Joey? I'm doing great. All right. So will you, what, what, what I find interesting about your story, and we're obviously going to get into it in more detail, but you have come into, Trextel's life at an inflection point in the company. Yep. Um, and, and, and that's part of what I want to focus on today. But to set the stage, give the audience an understanding of what Trextel, I guess, has traditionally done and what you're working um, to make the focus of the company. So Trextel focused mainly on IT infrastructure, deployment type services, and and everything from provisioning routers, rack and stack, cabling, feet on the street, technician out to the location, installing the equipment. Um, that the, the company was um, really heavy on deployment type services. Um, we are working now on transitioning more into a managed services model. So we still do the rack and stack. We'll still send techs out and install the equipment, but we really want to focus on adding the most value and monitor their networks um, and do that in, in cutting edge technology. For, for the layperson out there, define a rack and stack. So that's a technician going out to the site and installing a router in the back closet, you know, where all the cables come into the building, where mm-hmm. the circuit, the circuit access gets dropped off and they'll install the router and that router feeds the rest of the store or, you know, if it's retail or whatever the business is, it feeds to all the other computers and, and point of sale application or machine. Um, credit card swipes, things like that. And depending on the organization, that room could be a size of a shoebox or it could be something much more complex. It really could. So um, it, it depends on the vertical, right? Um, in retail, you tend to have limited space. They don't usually have, especially when you're dealing with quick serve restaurants and, and places like that, uh, you're pretty limited on space. Um, and, and if it's a large enterprise type business, you, you're going to have... You, you may have a whole 
a whole floor dedicated to that. So it all depends on the vertical, what you're supporting. We like to focus mainly on large enterprise. Okay. Um, we, we do have a, a great deal of retail customers, um, but we like to focus on large enterprise and we want you to have a hundred sites or more. That's where we could really add tremendous value. Obviously, the more sites, the better. Uh, but, um, you know, we, we could add a lot of value in monitoring their network. Um, and and delivering all of our managed services to them. That, that's how we feel in the real estate services industry too. The more sites, the better. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, now I'm I'm curious. So let, let's say that an organization has decided to not have um, you know all of that technology on premise, and they've gone to like a co location data center. How do you work with that model? We do that as well. We, we have engineers that are certified in, in cloud technologies and we, you know, we offer engineering design type service to our clients. Uh, you, you don't need a physical location for us to be involved. We could, we could really monitor, you know, and I keep saying monitor, right? That, that's our main focus right now is to get devices under active management. Um, so that's not the only thing that we do, but, um, but that's a, that's a heavy focus for us right now. Um, but we, like I said, we offer engineering hours design hours we we could we could design a network uh, design a full solution for you whether it is on-prem off-prem um but we could monitor anything it's kind of like a we're not an iot shop but it is kind of like internet of things we we could monitor anything with an ip address basically okay and so traditionally there it seems like there's been sort of three legs to your business there's the actual hardware itself there's the deployment of the hardware and then there's the managed services and your charge and what you're really passionate about is to boost that managed services piece as much as you can. Absolutely. Well, what I'm really passionate about is customer excellence and customer experience, right? That's, that's, uh, I live and breathe that. But, um, but the focus right now on the business and, and I'm very passionate about is, is trying to drive a lot of diversity into our, into our business model. Um, we want to drive more managed services and we have managed services with customers. Don't get me wrong. But, but again, it was a focus that was primarily, um, deployment heavy. And now we kind of want to flip that script, right? We want to go to a, you know, lopsided, on the managed service side. Okay. But what, why is that? What, what is the strategic advantage of that piece being the future on which um, the company is bent? Uh, because that that's where you get that's where you get your most scalability, right? The when you're when you're dealing in a a, a heavy deployment, you know, one and done type environment. Um, because w- once you deploy the equipment, you know, you'll get future business, sure. Three, four, or five years later, right? Because the, the, you know, the, the technology, even though sometimes it, it goes obsolete within a year, or, you know, you go out and buy the latest and greatest TV and it's, you know, the new model's out in six months, right? But, um, but you're, you're getting more scalability when you're in a managed services model. Um, in, in the one and done environment, your, your revenue is very lumpy. Um, your, your work volumes are unpredictable. They're up and down depending on how many customers you're installing at the same time and all that good stuff. So when you have a managed service environment, you have more flow. You have more of a steady flow. You, you get at that point now and, and it goes beyond revenue. Um, but it aligns with revenue where you have predictability. Uh, scalability. You could forecast. You you know what's coming in. You could you could now start trending um, more than just revenue. You could trend. You know the the average um, calls offered to your help desk per day. You could the the trouble tickets that your knock is handling or whatever the driver is. You could start. 
you could really start forecasting that stuff and, and predicting your future and, and, and getting law of averages and algorithms in there to say, here's how many people I need at this time supporting this product. And you could even boil it down to, to handle times and, and product sets specific. It's, it's no longer on just widgets. It's now what kind of widget. So it just really puts destiny in your hands that you can run a very efficient shop and people want to stay busy too. And you guys were really speaking my language uh, a little while ago when you talked about culture um, and people having purpose and, and things like that. So um, that's something we're really focused on in, in our shop as well, because people want to be productive. They want to be busy. Um, but they also want to know, you know they have to be empowered to, uh, like you were saying earlier, they have to be empowered to make decisions, right? And when they're getting consistent workload and consistent elements that are hitting their desk on a regular basis, it keeps them productive. It keeps them thinking. It keeps them active. Well, well, let's let's talk about that because when we're talking about fundamentally shifting the ratio of um, you know services within a business. We're really also talking about a people issue as well as a culture issue, right? If you, you, you can't just change a company by changing the type of services or products that it does, right? That's only right. one piece of it. So talk to me about how you approach that within Trextel. So the culture at Trextel was very strong. That, that was one thing that, that drew me, uh, to the company. Um, I had a pretty extensive interview process. So I got to meet a lot of people along the way. Um, the, the culture there was already very strong. Um, so that was definitely a draw for me. Um, but there, there, there was, uh, I don't know the best way to, to put it, but there, there was anxiety, so to say around, um, what they were handling and how quick it had to go out and, and, and some process concerns and things like that. So I think that's where I've added a lot of benefit to this company is going in and, and giving direction on, on process excellence, right? Um, don't get me wrong. They had documents, they had processes, right? But there's a difference between having a piece of paper that kind of tells you what to do to a full blown, um, drawn out uh, decision tree process flow along with knowledge base articles that marry up to those where people know for sure, here's how I handle these situations. When, when you get outside of tribal knowledge and it's not something that's repetitive that you're dealing with every single day over and over again, you, you may forget how to do certain things, right? I mean, all of us in all of our jobs, you, you, you don't know how to handle every single element, um, perfectly. So, um, those type of things help you. And just having consistent processes, um, and, and our administration team does a great job in, in culture building. Um, a social committee is something we implemented in the, um, in the company, uh, where we, we bring, um, a leader from, and when I say leader, it's not a manager or anyone like that from every department. It is the leader of the group, you know, someone that the peer group looks up to and says, Hey, you're someone we like to follow in your footsteps, right? So we, we grab one of those people out of production and we have, um, we have, uh, reoccurring meetings where, and, and none of the executives are involved. None of the managers are involved. Again, this is a, a peer group that, that goes behind the scenes and they figure out what do the people want? What kind of party are we doing this month? What kind of morale boosting event are we doing? Lunches, whatever. Uh, we do all sorts of great things. Um, anyone that follows me on, on LinkedIn could see, um, I, I try to share as much as possible when we're doing all of these cool things uh, around the company. Um, well, and, and I think that that is a very interesting point. Um, and I'm, I'm somewhat curious as to 
how your because you you came from organizations where you really helped grow them to a new level, Stratix mm-hmm. and Cbeyond specifically, and so I'm curious what you are taking from those experiences to now your new journey um, uh, at Trextel. Yep, taking a little bit of, from along the whole path, right, going way back when, right, but. Uh, um, you, you learn things over time that uh, you either like to do or, hey, that's something I really don't want to do. You know, you learn right. the good and bad from leaders. Um, even bad leaders you, you benefit from, right? Because you could, you, you learn in a different way. Um, but yeah, so there's a lot of things that I've learned over time and, and early on in my career. Um, and, and this was, uh, once I got into management with, uh, Sea Beyond. Um, one of the first two books that I read was, uh, one was How Full Is Your Bucket? I don't know if you have ever, ever read that. I forgot the author on that one. And then Building Call Center Culture by, I believe it was Dan Cohen. Um, those two books really opened my eyes to, wow, this is the type of person I am, right? I, I didn't really know it at the time, but going through those books, it, you know, I, I like to contribute to people's lives in, in some capacity. I like to make people feel good about what they're doing and, and kind of give them, you know, give them something to look forward to and motivate them. Um, and, and those two books really, uh, there's bits and pieces from those books that I've always zeroed in on to make sure that I add value to people in, in, in every conversation that you can. Every, every conversation is a crucial conversation and, and there's a book crucial, crucial conversations, but it's not about, uh, you know, it's not about having tough conversations, right? It, it's about every, to me, every conversation you could have with someone is crucial and you should add some kind of positive element to it. Um, it gets back to what you guys were talking about earlier with the vicious cycle and, you know, to avoid that type of stuff. I I think that motivation and adding value to people's lives is really the key to understanding how to build a great company in the 21st century because we're at this, we're at this place in, in civilization where, uh, look, in, within the small subset of developed world, um, you know, high level, uh, successful companies, uh, you know, people who generally, you know, have some sort of degree of education and privilege in life. And in that hierarchy of needs where we've passed food and shelter and, and, and everything at the bottom. And now we've gotten to the point where we're looking for self-actualization. Um, and the type of talent that we're talking about in the companies, um, that you two have, they're, they're looking. Yes, there's a paycheck. Yes, there's how do I support my family? But when you have an unemployment rate of three and a half percent it's what am i getting out of this i'm a talented person that could go to anywhere so how am i fulfilling that need for self-actualization um and to me the way that companies grapple with that and solve it is a big piece of whether they're going to be successful or not yep and it's it's about the messaging too right the one thing that we focus on is having consistent messaging um, and making sure everyone has a purpose. So our purpose at the company is connection. Um, and, and it's where, we're not only connecting networks, you know, we're, we're, we're going beyond that. We're, we're connecting workers to their networks to process their transactions or whatever their widget is that they have to do, but we're connecting communities. I mean, we, uh, Dollar Tree is a major customer of ours, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and we have many retailers that are, are customers on our network and, and they're, they're providing goods and services and to their community. You know, when, when you go into a men's warehouse to go buy 
buy a suit, you, you live in that local area typically. I mean, sometimes you might be on the road, but, um, but you typically live in that area. You know, you, when you go into a Dollar Tree, you typically live in that area. So we're, we're, we're connecting communities and we do a lot of community service events and things like that as well. Um, but connection is really what we drive in the company. We want to make sure our people are connected to our customers because our customers are connected to their customers, which is the community. And, and we're just, it's, it's all about connections, right? And, and not to be successful in the world, you know, that too. But, um, but we just want everyone to be on the same page and, and be connected with our customers. Well, look, I think if, if again, if you're going to spend this much time away from your family and this much effort, yes, of course, there's being successful and making money, but there's, there's got to be another piece to it as well. Absolutely. Um, I, I'm interested to learn more about your Intellitrex uh, product uh, that was recently announced. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, so you probably saw that we had a uh, press release a couple weeks ago around Intellitrex. That uh, was our first ever company press release. Uh, you know, so we went from first ever, really fr- first ever. Yeah, we wow. uh, we we are a um, Trexel's been around for uh, going on 11 years now. Um, but we, we truly are still in a startup type mode because we, we are introducing these new services and, and more to come, um, into the market. So we, you know, we've, we've gone from, you know, obviously before my time, a, a startup type firm, um, to a company making, you know, a couple million to 20 plus million. And, and we have a really strong growth pattern. Um, we, we've grown significantly over the last three years. Um, over, I think somewhere around 32% or, or somewhere in that, that range of growth year over year. And, um, and we have a, a growth plan in place to, you know, get to well beyond that. I'm not going to give away our spe- our special sauce, but, um, but we have a, a very aggressive hyper growth model, uh, planned out. And, and we're doing a lot to really drive it in that direction. And Teletrex is one of them, right? So we, we had our first ever company, uh, press release, uh, announcing Intellitrex and, um, Chris Garrett was the, the brains behind the operation. Um, he is our, um, he's our director of customer support and he built this tool homegrown from the ground up. Um, and, and this is a network monitoring tool, which on the surface people could say, well, everyone does that. Everyone does network monitoring, right? Well, a lot of companies do. Um, but we really focus on cutting through the noise of traditional network monitoring. So the, when you have a network monitoring system in place, you are looking at other, your customers' networks that you're supporting and you're getting alarms and it's telling you, you know, this circuit's down or, you know, this one's bouncing or whatever's wrong with the access into the location. Well, our system doesn't just grab that and say, okay, Noctec, go check it out. That's more of a tradi- uh, traditional model. Um, our system has a, a level of, of AI built into it. We have, uh, event handlers and, and it's, um, and AI is really nothing more than automation, right? It, it's, it's a, a fancy way of saying automation, but, but we do have a high level of automation in the system that when a circuit goes down or it's taking slips or bouncing or whatever's going on, the system is looking at that circuit and saying, okay, here's how I need to handle this event. And I'm going to do A, B, C, D, and this all happens, you know, light speed, right? And it's trying all of these potential fixes to get the circuit back up and running. And, and we're clearing through a lot of that noise. You know, one customer in particular that, that we've, that we've injected this on, uh, we were getting over a million, um, alerts a month. Wow. Which is significant. And this was on a seven to, you know, 7,000 or 8,000 user base. So it's not like, it, you know, we were supporting a couple hundred thousand stores, right? It's, 
Um, so we're getting a, uh, approximately a million a month. And now our system has really cut through all that noise and, and we're getting somewhere in the neighborhood of a thousand. And so it, it, it sounds like what this does is a more targeted automated way to solve a problem before having to get uh, the human element involved. That's right. Okay. And, and, and we'll log it. The system will log a ticket and drop the info in there, close it out and, and, and it'll do all that automatically. Right. And, and if, um, if the events that it goes through does not solve the issue, that's when it gets handed off to a human. Okay. But then at that point, the human knows all of these things were already done. I don't need to do any of this stuff. Right. I need to pick it up from here. So it, it also helps in terms of meantime, the repair, um, our meantime, the repair is, is, historically low compared to what is you know well new low compared to the historical numbers that were out there got it we've talked a lot about the retail case study but i'm curious with your new push towards um increased focus on managed services and of course the the new product are there industries that you have traditionally not um uh you know really been that active in that you're making an effort to uh, penetrate a little bit deeper yeah, we really want to focus on more of, uh, medical. We want to get, you know, we do have medical clients, but, uh, we, we want to, we want to really zero in in that medical and finance, uh, type verticals. Okay. We have a pretty strong footprint in retail right now. So we want to really zero in on those two. Um, you know, what you, you have thrown around a number of book names, um, throughout this conversation and I find it, I'm, I'm a big reader. I think that anyone who wants to be an interesting person needs to be a big reader. Um, and I'm always interested to hear about what executives are reading and how they're finding them. And I think, look, the good thing in our day and age is that we have a lot of choices. The bad thing is that choices typically overwhelm people. And so for someone out there who wants to understand, you know, they go to their local library or maybe that's maybe I'm just old fashioned. They go to Amazon and they figure out what what am I going to read to make myself a better business person? How how do you choose your books and your topics and find them? Um, first thing we figure out is, and we have executive strategy meetings, uh, weekly. Um, the CEO of our company, Jason Morrow, uh, really has his act together in terms of where he wants to take the company and his plans and his vision, uh, just incredible vision. And we figure out what our goal is. Where do we want to get to? Now let's figure out what we have to do to get there. I mean, like you said, library full of books there. You, you could find whatever it is that, um, that you need to, I think the most important piece is to understand your goal. Where do you want to get to? And don't get sidetracked by it. Um, and have a limited goal, you know, and a goal is not a revenue number. A goal is, you know, is not a, it's not a result. A goal is, you know, where we want to get to in terms of how many devices we want to have under active management within mm-hmm. the next 10 years, right? That's a goal. Because the revenue is going to just come with that, right? The 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 net promoter score for your customer satisfaction is just going to come with it. It's going to be a result. Your operating cost just going to be a result. Uh, we want to get to where do we want to be? Sure, sure. And of course, it needs to be somewhat quantifiable. But um, right. every everything else follows that goal. Absolutely. Okay. So with all of these exciting developments at Trextel, if someone listening to this wants to talk to you more, how do they do that? Uh, they could email me at jmacchiarella, and let me spell that, <laughs> j-m-a-c-c-h-i-a-r-e-l-l-a at trextel, T-R-E-X-T-E-L dot com.
Fantastic. And for, for everyone who is listening to this over um, podcast download, uh, we will put contact information in the show notes as well. All right, Joe and Mike, thanks guys for coming on. And to listeners, thank you for tuning in to another great episode of Tech Talk.